Uh, it's been a whirlwind tour, and this is the capstone. Would you open your Bibles, please, to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. This is Halloween, most places. It was where we had breakfast. All the waitresses had on their uniforms. And whenever the atheists complain that we are too religious a society and they don't, we have Christmas and Easter, I always tell them they have Halloween and April's Fool's Day. And But tomorrow's November and you're in the middle of a school year and knowing a little bit about the moods and the pressures of students who are in the grind and who are preparing and training and working and studying and doing all the things necessary to one day get a piece of paper from that institution saying they made it. I think I know a little bit about the emotions of a student body that must be dealt with on a regular basis. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning with verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy our brother, unto the church of God which is at Corinth, with all the saints which are in all Achaia. Grace be to you, and peace from God our Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort, or better translated, the God of all encouragement who encourageth us in all our tribulation or troubles, that we may be able to encourage them which are in any trouble by the encouragement wherewith we ourselves are encouraged of God. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for the Master's College. Thank you for your Son, the Master. And here today, say something to us that will help us to more effectively say something to a lost world. In Jesus' name, amen. The God of all encouragement. Mr. Moody used to say, I've never known God to use a discouraged person. And after being in the ministry in one church for over 30 years, I think I can say I agree with that. When a person is discouraged, despondent, depressed, down in spirit, he is of no value to the Lord, to himself, to his family, to his employer. God just does not use discouraged people. Zig Ziglar, the motivator, said that a man's attitude, not his aptitude, determines his altitude. And for a believer and a follower of Jesus Christ, it is so absolutely true that when your spirit is down, everything about you is below the norm. And I often, to the students at Liberty, have said that you do not determine a person's, a man's, greatness, a woman's greatness by his or her talent or wealth as the world does, but rather by what it takes to discourage you. You don't determine a person's greatness by talent or wealth, but rather by what it takes to discourage you. That is how great you are. What it takes to make you throw in the towel, quit, capitulate, cave in, that is how great you are. And I want to talk to you about this God of all encouragement. And the fact that discouragement is the opposite of faith and therefore is not a weakness or a vice, it is sin. In Romans 14:23, Paul said, that which is not of faith is sin. Faith is the opposite of discouragement. Faith is taking God at his word no matter what the environment or the 
circumstances may dictate. Discouragement is believing your circumstances, believing the environment rather than taking God at his word. And most of us vacillate between faith and discouragement all of our Christian life and it isn't necessary. Because Paul said he is the God of all encouragement and when discouragement, despondency, or as the psychiatrist like to use that phrase, depression, when you're down mentally, down spiritually, you are in sin. That is wrong. And you can't solve that problem calling it anything but sin because the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanseth from sin but not from weaknesses. From sin but not from vices. From sins but not social disorders. And you need to recognize, identify, and call discouragement what it is. It's sin. When I am down, I am in sin. And I need to recognize it and claim the blood of Christ. Man who's born of woman is a few days and full of troubles. Only three kinds of people in this room today. Those who were in serious trouble yesterday. Those who are in serious trouble today are those who will get the phone call tomorrow. Some are in all three at the same time all the time. And wherever you identify yourself, the fact is you will never live long enough, become smart enough, wealthy, powerful enough to get out of trouble. The bottom line in the Christian life is not learning how to get out of trouble. The bottom line is learning how to live in trouble. Learning how to live under pressure. Learning how to live under attack. Learning how to live under adversity, opposition. Because for the rest of your life, you're in the, in the pressure cooker. And there is no escape. The Hebrew children were not delivered from the furnace. They were delivered in the furnace. And you are in the furnace, and if you think when school is over, your troubles are history, you have another thought coming. When God allowed me to start a little church in Lynchburg, Virginia, 30 years ago, with 35 people, and I was the song leader, and the pastor, and the choir leader, and the janitor, and the secretary, and all there was, and earning $65 a week for doing it, I thought how great it is going to be one day to have a staff. How great it will be one day to have paid workers and helpers in the ministry. And I'll be able to rest a little bit and shed some of this responsibility. And 30 years later, we have a staff, and I'm working harder now than I did then. And the pressures are worse now than they were then. And the problems are greater now than they were then. So the issue is how to learn to live in trouble. Because you're never going to get out until you go up to be with him. When do troubles come in our lives? They come at two different times. The troubles that cause the defeat of our spirit and, and cause us to cave in and, and uh, buckle beneath the load, those troubles come at two different times in our lives. Sometimes they come when we have sinned. They come when we have done wrong. They come when we deserve to be chastised. Whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. Sometimes our troubles come when we have disobeyed the Lord and defied his will. Sometimes troubles come when we're doing God's will the best way we know how. 
Often walking in the will of God, walking in the Spirit, the stars fall out of our heaven, the, our world collapses underneath us, everything that's important and precious to us disappears, and we just don't understand it. I remember preaching in a church in Danville that Bill, you'll remember the old Baptist tabernacle, and I made a statement something like this, that that it is wrong to listen to those preachers who tell you that when you're sick or have a tragedy or a trouble or a heartache it's wrong to assume that you're definitely out of the will of God and God is trying to put his finger on sin in your life that may be the case but it may well not be the case because I said sometimes when you're doing the will of God the very best you know how everything goes haywire after the service a man in his forties came to me and told me his story. He said, you'll never know what a burden was lifted off my heart tonight. He said, my wife, with whom I'd lived for many years, who never had a sick day in her life, became ill about 15 months ago, and within two or three months, she was dead. And the business which she and I had built up together and was serving us quite well and our two teenage boys quite well, suddenly went into an economic tailspin and I'm sad to say that I was went into bankruptcy a few months ago. And I've been tr struggling to take care of my boys and be a daddy. And I'm a, I was a deacon in this church. I was a Sunday school teacher. I've resigned both positions. Because certainly I felt there's something wrong in my life or else God would not be punishing me so. And I went to my pastor and I went to others asking, what have I done? What is it? that God's trying to say, I've, I've looked in morbid introspection into my own life, trying to determine what have I done. And although I could not determine what it was, surely I am not worthy to serve God and I've quit everything. My pastor tried to prevent it. He wisely tried to prevent my resigning all the responsibilities. And tonight, when I heard you say that often when you're walking in the center of the will of God, your world collapses and unexplainable tragedies occur and things go wrong. God used that to lift a burden from our heart. Troubles come sometimes when we've sinned and sometimes they come when we're walking in the Spirit. The fact is that prosperity theology is a lot of baloney. The preachers who preach that in the will of God you have abundant wealth and perfect health die just like the rest of us and they leave this world and everything behind when they go. I heard someone at a funeral once, a very wealthy man, asked the question, how much did he leave? And the answer was he left it all. You go out just as naked as you came in, just as bankrupt as when you entered with nothing. And the fact is that prosperity theology is the most frustrating and evil doctrine. These pie-in-the-sky Reverend Ikes, whether they be black or white or Baptist or Pentecostal are frustrating and debilitating people everywhere who think there's something wrong in my life or else I would be wealthy. The fact is that most of our Lord's followers through the history of the church have been the poor and the hurting and the sick. And if they are not, they soon become that. Prosperity theology is wrong. And sometimes when you're doing God's will the best you know how, Sickness, sorrow, heartache, heartbreak becomes your lot. Then why do those things come? I said, first of all, whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. It is true that sometimes the Lord must 
paddle, he must spank and correct us. And I'm glad we have a God who cares enough about us to discipline us when we need it. And we all need it at times. But more often than not, there are other reasons. Often it is to humble us. I don't know about you, but I can speak for myself. That uh, when I, as a pastor, have a great day on Sunday and a lot of people led to Christ and tremendous reports all week long of soul winning throughout the city and God provides materially for the needs of the ministry, everything is in order. I become just a little bit self-sufficient, a little bit self-serving and, and a little bit ungrateful. My prayer life suffers. And so God knows where to put the pin in and where to pop the balloon and where to get our attention. He knows where the panic button in every life is. And often trouble comes to humble us for God can only use humble saints. He can't use the proud and the arrogant. We have a tendency to look at the John MacArthur's and others on Sunday speaking to thousands of people and seeing them in leadership in the ministry and make uh, a misjudgment that this is a glamorous and a most exciting and thrilling and wonderful, wonderful work. I can tell you for myself, and I suspect John has had the same, that for every good day I've ever had, I've had two bad ones at least. For every good day, at least two bad ones. And you cannot know what is behind that leadership and the price that has been and is being paid. It is part of it. Your pastor in leading this great work uh, has opponents you know nothing about. The sectorists on the outside don't like what he's doing, so he has that to deal with. And then like Job, who was lying in sackcloth and ashes, wrapped up in boils, miserable. His wife came by and told him to curse God and die. I never figured out why when God got the rest of him, he didn't get hurt. But she came by and told him to curse God and die. And then his three fundamental Baptist brethren came by. And, and said, Job, you've, there's something you haven't told us. And they wrote him up in the papers. And they talked about him on the air. And they mailed out publications. Because there was unconfessed sin in his life. And therefore, he was being judged. God does all these things to keep us at that point and place where we're humble. I was jesting with, with your pastor at breakfast this morning. I heard someone call him a, a heretic. That's almost like calling Jesus a heretic. I mean, I don't equate John with Jesus except that Jesus lives in him. But I don't, I don't know of anybody who stands more for truth than John MacArthur. I don't know of anybody whose judgment about the Word of God I would trust more implicitly than John MacArthur's. And that's a broad statement. I've been a Christian 35 years and I've met a lot of outstanding people. I don't know of anybody whose interpretation of Scripture that I would more subscribe to without looking twice than John MacArthur's. But that's all part of it. And by the way, the folks who attack you the most down the road, you'll be disappointed to find will be those who ought to be cheering for you. And ought to be rejoicing with you. That's all part of it. And my dear late mentor, now in heaven two years, Dr. B.R. Lakin, and I guess I miss him as much now as uh, more so than when he was with me for 30 years, preached for 66 years, he used to say, Jerry, don't let them bother you. When they're kicking you in the rear, that means you're out front. And 
and um, it's um, so John I think you must be out front uh, it's part of it and you never get away from it so God needs to humble us also these troubles and trials are wonderful teachers and in Isaiah 30 he was talking about the adversities, the water of affliction, the bread of adversity. When those things come into our lives, they're teachers sent by God to instruct us until we can hear that still small voice saying, this is the way, walk ye in it. And we, we learn. You don't learn much in prosperity. You learn, learn a lot more in adversity. Prosperity is not a very good teacher. Adversity is a wonderful teacher. The best classroom is a spiritual foxhole. Where there's nowhere to look but up and no one to help you but God. And so trouble is often that teacher. You also are made fruitful in trouble. That's why those things come. God wants you to bear fruit, more fruit, much fruit. John 15. God wants you to be fruitful. And so he has to purge you, burn away the dross. It's all part of it. He wants to purify you. He wants to deal with sin. Sins of omission and commission in your life. But ultimately, and this is so key... God has made up his mind. He has predestined you to look like Jesus, to act like Jesus, to be like Jesus. Everybody quotes Romans 8, 28. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God. Everybody knows that. I was called to a jail to visit a fellow who had beaten his wife up the night before and she'd put him in jail like she ought to. And I said, Willie, what on earth happened to you? He said, well, preacher, you know, all things work together for good. And uh, that's not what it says. It says to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. And the next verse, you should never take 28 without 29. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. Predestination. I used to know a lot about predestination. I wrote a paper on it when I was a freshman in college. Uh, I don't know as much now as I did then. I... And being head of a school, I have some faculty members who do. Some it's foreordination, others it's foreknowledge and and uh, election. And we used to have some people in our church who who believe that everything that that was had to be and and uh, was going to be and and uh, that uh, there was no human element in it and and that uh, some were foreordained to hell before they were born and one of them was so dogmatic if he fell down the stairs he'd say thank god that's over <laughs> and they finally finally left thank god but it but there, there's just a lot of controversy on predestination and election one thing i have learned and this is really important if you're going to be a pastor uh, i have learned after so many years in the ministry that the more people you witness to the more get elected and so what I would just suggest is a little thing I've learned. Just go out and witness to a lot of people and tell a lot of people about the Lord and share Christ with a lot of people. And while I don't know much about how it all works, I do know that the, numerically the statistics are the more to whom you witness, the more get converted. So just obey the scriptures and tell everybody and leave that up to him. But, but God has predestined every one of us. This part I do know to be like Jesus. God has made up his mind that you are going to reflect the image of God's Son. 
whether by premature home-going, a sin unto death, taking you out because of rebellion, or through the progressive unfolding of God's purpose in your life through troubles and trials and the Word and prayer and people and ministry, etc., experience, somehow, some way, God's going to make you like Jesus. It's far better to enjoy the trip than to endure it. And so God is, has made up His mind to make you like Jesus and troubles and trials a part of it. The bottom line, I repeat, is that the success of Christian living is not based upon getting out of trouble, learning how to escape trouble, but how to live in trouble. How should I respond when troubles are coming my way? Number one, I need to recognize the source of my troubles. Where do troubles come from? Where do your troubles come from? I'll make a statement and then prove it by Scripture. Nothing happens, nothing happens in the life of the believer by chance, fortune, misfortune, fate, good luck, bad luck, all that's hogwash. Everything happens either directly or indirectly from the hand of God in your life, good or bad for the moment. Second Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. All things become new. But for that new creature in Christ, verse 18 is very key also. Verse 18 says, for that new creature, all things, A-double-L, -L, all things are of God. Now that sounds a little fatalistic, but it is absolute fact that in the life of the believer, whatever happens is of God. You say, what difference does that make? It makes a lot of difference. You know, we have three children. Only God could give several children to a mom and dad and from the same parents create every child so totally and distinctively different. We have a son, Jerry, who finishes law school this year. And he uh, gets his, will get his law degree at the University of Virginia. Jerry's always been the kind of child that um, I could give just one stern look to and just that quickly have his attention and his obedience. I don't ever recall spanking Jerry once. I never recall a time when I felt that I should have and didn't. Our daughter Jeannie was much like that. Once in a while she might have to hear her name rather strongly pronounced. But her attention was right there. She's in medical college studying to be a doctor at the Medical College of Virginia right now. She's 21. But then God gave us Jonathan. He's a redhead. He's, um, he's 20 years old now. He's a graduate at Liberty this year and going to seminary next year to say he's going to take my job. Big, tall boy. I look up to him. But from birth, he has been an accident looking for a place to happen. He has, he, in the early years of his life, he broke at least one bone a year. We have an orthopedic surgeon we kept in business. He doesn't walk anywhere. He's got to run. He never got up out of bed. He jumped up out of bed. And whenever the phone rang, it was a neighbor on the phone. I knew Jonathan had slugged somebody. Somebody in the neighborhood. And I have absolutely put the pressure on that boy's north end going south so many times. <laughs> And often, often, at great pain to myself, sustained it and sustained it until his will was broken. And, and you know, by the way, never one time while I was doing that for him, 
Has he ever looked up and said, Dad, I sincerely appreciate what you're doing to develop my character? He was an absolutely ungrateful wretch. But 30 seconds later, Jonathan would have his arms around my neck and mine around him. And after a few hugs and kisses, we'll be out in the yard playing ball together again. And the reason is, as limited and as capable of error as I am, Jonathan knew my daddy loves me. And he would never intentionally hurt me or be unfair to me or put on one lick too many. I might have done that sometimes, but he believed how much his daddy loved him. How much more can we trust the Heavenly Father when he has tried us to bring us forth his gold, never to put on one lick too many, never to keep us in the tunnel too long? How much more can we trust him to deal fairly and justly with us, no matter how much it hurts at the moment? Recognize the source of your trouble. He said, I just can't believe that God is in some of the terrible things that have happened in my life. Job, I mentioned earlier, was a great man. He was a godly man. He hated sin, loved God, feared God. And one day, Satan, the prosecuting attorney, marched into heaven to accuse the brethren. That is his function. He's the accuser of the brethren. Thank God we have a defense attorney who's never lost a case, Jesus Christ, the advocate, 1 John 2, who always, at the conclusion of the allegations from Satan stands and says, Father, you know I, those things are true, but you remember I died for all those sins and crimes at the cross. No double jeopardy up here. Can't be tried twice for the same thing. But he accused everyone, but left Job significantly off the list. And God said, if he's capable of sarcasm, he said sarcastically, Have you considered my servant Job? Yes, I have considered him, Satan responded, but who wouldn't serve you? Do you think he serves you for naught, for nothing? He is the wealthiest man on the earth. And God then said that I will give you permission to do whatever you wish in Job's life, except you can't take his life. And in one day, he wiped him out, his barns, his cattle, his holdings, his wealth, his ten children. He was bankrupted in a day. A man of God who loved God and hated evil. And Job sinned not, neither charged God foolishly. He said, The Lord hath given, the Lord hath taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And Satan marches right back the next day, makes his accusations, leaves Job off the list. And God says, Have you considered my servant Job? Yes, but do you think he serves you for nothing? He has never been sick one day in his life. Never been in a hospital as a patient. Never had an excedrin headache. Do you think... That if his health were to fail, he would still serve you. And with that, God gave him permission again to take Job into the valley of suffering, pain, and misery. And he wrapped him up in boils, head and foot, so he could not lie down or stand up comfortably. And it was in that situation where his wife and his friends uh, condemned him. But Job 13, 15 is a dynamic, a powerful verse. And you ought to get this one because there will be a few times in your life where wiped out, devastated, lonely, betrayed, forsaken, and in pain, you'll need to be able to say with Job, 
Though the Lord slay me, yet will I trust him. Numb with pain, crushed, no reason to go on. You ignore your feelings. You ignore your problems. You ignore the circumstances. And you look up to God with the tears flowing from your eyes saying, You'll have to kill me before I stop serving you and trusting you. Now that's the philosophy. You need to recognize that Satan is nothing more than the unwilling servant of Jehovah. Satan is not almighty. Only God is all-powerful. And while he may be on a long leash, he is on a leash. The parameter of the will of God restricts him from doing anything in my life that is not the good pleasure of my Lord. He cannot touch me without divine permission. Now you need to understand that because that's why you can resist the devil and he'll flee from you. That's why you can quote the word of God and drive him from you because he is not almighty. He's nothing more than the unwilling servant of Jehovah. Secondly, not only recognize where your troubles and trials are coming from, but recognize, recognize that these are to bring joy, not sorrow, into your life. James said, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into these diverse testings. That's a lot easier said than done. We have a lady in the choir, Thomas Road. She's been there since day one, 30 years. Doris Perry, who has had 18 major surgeries. And I was visiting her in the hospital on her, or just ahead of her 19th, yet to come that day. And walking down the hallway toward her room, I was trying to think of what poetic and comforting thing I might say to her. This time I hadn't said the other 18 times. And walked into her room and saw a decal on her meal table which said it all and told me I didn't need to say much. It said, praise the Lord anyhow. That's good theology. Praise the Lord anyhow. Don't understand it. Don't know why. Can't imagine what this is all about, but praise the Lord anyhow. When God brings you to the place where amidst the tears and the pain, you can say thank you. Sincerely, not just mechanically, but sincerely. He is then accomplishing in your life a deeper work that will equip you to be a winner, spiritually a winner. You should cut, quit, and cannot out of your dictionary. Two words you don't need. I can, Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He said, I have learned in whatsoever state I am, rich, poor, hurting, jail, free, whatever, therewith, in that place, to be content, to be happy, to be living joyfully. In a jail cell, he said, I have learned to be content here, to enjoy myself. To understand that this is from the hand of God and to count it all joy. And then like Job, you need in your deepest time of suffering to say, though the Lord slay me, yet will I trust him. Though the Lord slay me, kill me, I will not turn back. Paul the Apostle, stoned, shipwrecked, beaten, let over the wall in a basket. Brilliant man. 
a man who served Christ with a level of dedication second probably to no one outside Christ himself and in 2 Corinthians 11 22 through 28 he said after giving that long list of his troubles and trials concluded in verse 28 saying and that was enough to kill 10 men he said besides those things all that pedigree of problems that which cometh upon me daily the care of all the churches besides all these external pressures I've had my ministry to perform and he performed it so well that he was able to say just ahead of martyrdom I have fought a good fight I have kept the faith I have finished the course and there's a crown waiting for me there are some times when you get up in the morning to go to class to learn or to teach or you get up to go to work or you're working six or eight hours you're taking care of a family and you're going to class and you're studying till you fall asleep and you're trying to graduate and trying to prepare yourself for the king's service there are times when you just get up on nothing but numb reserve and look up to God and say one more day Lord and I without you cannot make it but with you I can do all things and just start walking in the right direction and you sit down if you're a pastor and you're counseling people whom you've got to help and your whole being is crushed and you're wondering can I sit through this hour can I physically stay here because of all the pain that is yours and yet spiritually you must concentrate not on yourself but on him on her and suddenly as Paul termed it so beautifully he said I've come to rejoice to thank God to worship to praise when I'm weak when I've come to the end of myself when I am drained because when I am weak in my own strength then then am I strongest in the strength of Christ there is a place in the Christian life where only those who've made the trip know what I'm talking about where you shift out of the tank in which your energy and resources are and you shift and switch over to total resources and reserves from Christ storage tank and you at the end of yourself have found the beginning of God and suddenly you're living in the supernatural no longer the natural suddenly you're living in the divine no longer the human suddenly you're no longer the ordinary you're the extraordinary because emptied of yourself you're filled with Christ and you're living in the energy and the power and the strength and the grace of another person and you cannot learn that until God has beaten everything else out of you and sifted you as wheat you cannot learn what I'm talking about in a textbook or a classroom and you show me a great work for God and I'll show you somebody who's taken that trip somebody has paid that price somebody has been down the road where he has been emptied of himself by whatever the circumstances necessary and thus filled with Christ and then suddenly the resurrection life of Christ that's produced only by the fellowship of his sufferings and his death has enabled that person to do what he could never have done in his own strength but all the peoples of the world could not have done in their own strength so when you're hurting when you're really going through the crucible of suffering 
Be conscious of the fact that God wants to do something unique and special through me. And if I can live through this, if I can somehow, if I can somehow not just survive the cross, but embrace it. If I can somehow not just endure this experience, but be baptized and immersed in it by choice, then I will know what Paul meant when he said, I take pleasure in my infirmities. I just feel real good when I'm in distress. I get real excited when I get all the bad reports on Monday morning. My blood pressure starts moving up when they come in and tell me how everything that's important to me is about to be wiped out. Because I become spiritually sensitive to the fact that God's about to do something wonderful in my life. God's about to do something that nobody else can do nor could anyone else have predicted. I was telling John about Vernon Brewer, our dean of students, 18 months ago. I was at the hospital after a surgery, an exploratory surgery with Patty Vernon's wife. We waited. The doctor came in and said, we've just taken a five-pound mass, malignant mass from around his heart, his lungs. And this 38-year-old young man is uh, not long for this world. We could not get it all. We could not get it all. That was 18 months ago. Went on chemotherapy. 14 surgeries later. Just three months ago, he went off chemotherapy. Cancer is gone. And he's back performing his duties as Dean of Students at Liberty University and traveling with me this week and carrying enough baggage to have gone to the Mediterranean for six years <laughs> on both shoulders and both hands and it's just a delight to walk behind him I don't help him I just let him <laughs> he brought all that junk with him let him carry it but watch him walking stumbling down the hallway thinking that guy's supposed to be dead and through these 18 months God has taught Vernon Brewer what all of his education and training and background and his pastor father's instruction could never have taught him. And he knows some things that I don't know because I haven't been to death's door yet. And because of a few things we've been through down through the valley when it really wasn't worth getting up the next morning, we've learned a few things you haven't learned yet. There are no shortcuts to holiness. Be patient. Let God do his thorough and complete work in your life. And don't grumble and complain and bellyache along the way, saying nobody has it as hard as I. You may have to go two doors down the street before you find somebody who's having it worse than you are. And the fact is that, that as a believer, that's all part of the growing up process. And some of you are having a tough time now, paying your bills and studying. And some of the professors here are weird. <laughs> And you're having a terrible time internalizing what they're trying to say to you. And they're terribly unfair to you. But if you learn to quit at this juncture in your life, you'll learn the practice that you'll experience all the rest of your life. You don't quit. You put your hands to the plow. And whatever God has told you to do, you do it if you die doing it. You have no right to ever be a dropout from the Master's College. If you leave this school, no matter what the circumstances, and if God put you here and you reject that calling, 
and reverse that calling and go elsewhere, whatever else is second best. And learning to quit will become a habit in your life. And for the rest of your life, when the going gets tough, you'll be somewhere else. Learn, though the Lord slay you, to trust Him and to stay in there and to finish what you start and develop that integrity and that character and that commitment that will never allow you to be a victim of your feelings. Mr. Moody was right. God does not use discouraged people. And you do not determine a man's greatness by his talent or by his wealth as the world does, but rather by what it takes to discourage him. How great are you? What does it take to make a quitter out of you? Anything this side of death is unacceptable. Anything this side of death is unacceptable. Let us pray.